Uh, thank you again. Thank you for the opportunity of being here with you, sharing with you in the Word of God. We're going to turn, as I said tonight, to the latter part of Samuel, 2 Samuel. I'll begin reading in chapter 23, 2 Samuel chapter 23. If you want to follow along in your Bible... Appreciate uh, prayer for safe travel tomorrow for me, and sort of a short week, quick turnaround, head for North Carolina on Friday with the large model of the tabernacle, pulling the trailer there for a week of meetings in an area of the country where there are three local churches that uh, pretty much uh, are made up of all or all the folks in the congregations are uh, from the Lumbee Indian tribes that are in that particular area of North Carolina. If you ever happen to cross through there and you cross the Lumbar River, uh, these particular folks are Lumbee Indians, and uh, it's just a different, distinct sort of tribe. But... Um, the Lord's done a tremendous work there over the years, and so there are three, three local churches in that little geographical area, and whenever they have a conference, they all come together, probably be 150 upwards, so you know that'll be together for the conference, and it's uh, really a, a great group of folks. So we'll have special meetings with the large model of the tabernacle, and then uh, get home and do another sort of a quick turnaround on the Monday and Tuesday followed to drive to Miami to take the trailer with the tabernacle where, um, Lord willing, it seems like everything is a go, we'll ship it over to Nassau in the Bahamas where in October we'll have a month of meetings with uh, the tabernacle there. So it's kind of a busy little bit of a time with a lot of turnaround. And then as soon as I get back from Miami, I turn around and fly to Pennsylvania, but I don't want to bore you with details. So uh, anyway, um, just uh, appreciate prayer for travels and wisdom and making decisions on where to go and, and all that kind of a thing. So, um, and if you don't know what we mean by the large tabernacle, just squeeze in one little other request. I'm trying to work on a Facebook page and a website with a description of the tabernacle model that we use and it's getting close to being done, and then there'll be a little bit of, it'll be a little bit easier to explain to folks. They say, well, is it a full-size model? And I'm like, no, it couldn't hardly be. Is it a scale model? Well, parts of it are, and so it's just hard to say, you know, the large scale model, 50 feet by 15 if we put the whole thing up. So uh, anyway, um, pray that I can get that social media stuff done so that we can pass out the information a little bit easier and people can uh, understand what it's all about. There, if that hasn't confused you enough, we're going to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23 and read from verse 1. Now, these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word 
was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning, even when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure. For this is all my salvation, and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man that shall touch them must be fenced with iron and the staff of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. If you weren't here this morning, and even if you were, I mention again that um, in case you are unaware of it, this is an election year, and uh, you could hardly be unaware of it. Uh, oftentimes in a political year particularly, it can be a year of turmoil, uh, a time of change and um, upheaval in certain areas. And so um, as we think about that, uh, we think about David. We began this morning by thinking a little bit about God's government in the life of a woman named Hannah. In a time of upheaval, in a time of uh, things when things were topsy-turvy and things weren't right in the country in which she lived, and uh, the descriptive phrase that was found from the book of Judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no king over Israel in that day. And you might wonder, reading the subsequent history, if things got any better when there was a king, because oftentimes the, t the period of the kings was a very turbulent time. But we come now to David, and we are not the only ones who have thought about the subject or the nature of government. David, whom God raised up to be king of Israel, was one himself who reflected on the very nature of government, of God's government in the past, of God's government and what it might be in the future. And in these last stories that we find here in 2 Samuel, as it said, the last words of David, we go beyond just the words of David, and we go beyond even just the reflections of a king who's getting a little bit older and looks back now on his life and what God has done and looks towards the future, to what lies ahead and what the future might hold. We look beyond that because David says that what I'm saying, I say by inspiration of God's Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me. His word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spake to me. And so four ways or four lines there to emphasize that what he is saying now is not just the prating or the reflections of an old man who thinks back on how things used to be. That's something that some of us kind of do from time to time, you know, and how much better it was and all of that. That's not what this is. God spoke to me and revealed these things to which he says I am now passing on to you as he reflected uh, towards the end of his life 
in what is called the last words of David. And it's interesting to know that now he seeks not only to speak to us, to give us information, but to stir our imaginations. It's one of the fascinating things about the Word of God, that God paints pictures with words, because he doesn't just want to tickle our intellect, he wants to stir our imaginations and to get us to think about things. And he has a variety of literary devices that he uses to do that. If you, well, I just uh, was listening in as we were praying, and Justin mentioned that they've just finished in the Monday night study the book of the Revelation, and certainly there's a book again, which isn't just straightforward doctrinal teaching. God could do that, but it's a book that draws on symbolic imagery. Why? Because God wants us to think not only with our minds strictly in an intellectual way, but with our imaginations to think of these things. So he paints these great pictures through poetry to stir our hearts to think on these great things. And we're going to look as well, if we could, in 1 Samuel 22, because there it is where uh, David uh, rehearses how God placed him on the throne. And David, you know, was a unique king. He was a king, not only uh, uh, an, an emperor, but he became an imperial monarch because he ruled not only over his own people, Israel, but other nations were drawn to David. The Gentiles were drawn to David. It wasn't just the Jews that submitted to his authority. The Gentiles came and were attracted to him and submitted themselves. So let's look again at a great piece of poetry. Matter of fact, in verse 1, David spake unto the Lord the words of this song. And if it sounds somewhat familiar to you, you'll know that you can go to Psalm 18 in the book of Psalms and find it almost verbatim there, what we read in first, or in 2 Samuel chapter 22. David spake unto the Lord the words of this song, in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence. I will call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. When the waves of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet, and he rode upon a cherub and did fly. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. And he made darkness pavilions round about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Through the brightness before him were coals of fire kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and discomfited them. And the channels of the sea appeared. 
The foundations of the world were discovered at the rebuking of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He set from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from the hand uh, for, and from them that hated me, for they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted on me, delighted in me. And so David reflects now back on the fact that this is how God had delivered him. It's an incredible piece of poetry just to begin to think about the imagery that he uses here to describe this theophany or this appearance of God, as he says, and we'll look at that a bit more as we, as we think about it, how it was that God placed David on the throne and made him a king of such notoriety that not only did most of Israel submit to him and, and were attracted to him, but ultimately even the Gentiles came. Many of them submitted themselves unto him. And so let's think back now in, in chapter 23 as David reflects on the very nature of government. He says, He that ruleth over men must be just. He must rule in the fear of God. And as David begins to reflect upon this, he says, He shall be as the light of the morning when the sun rises, even a morning without clouds, as a tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Um, I suppose if we stop right there, we could say that there's the rub, isn't it? David knew the essence of the problem of government, that in one sense it doesn't matter what form government takes. Here's the problem. It's very basic, and yet it's profound, isn't it? It's just as simple as this. He that ruleth over men must be just. He must be righteous. And there's the problem, isn't it? You can have the best form of government ever devised by men on planet Earth, but if you don't have a just man, a just person to implement that government and carry it out, doesn't matter what the form of it is. David knew that was the real essence of the problem. He that ruleth over men, he must be just. He must be righteous. And therein is the problem, isn't it? That when it comes to humanity, the Word of God reminds us that there is none righteous in ourselves. No, not one. Not a one of us. We've all gone astray. We've all missed the mark. That's the reason why we need God's salvation. Now, it's true that when we come to Christ, we who believe in the Lord Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, we are told that he made him to be a, a sin for us, a sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And we stand in the righteousness of God that is provided through the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of God's Son. But in and of ourselves, we're not righteous. And even though David was a great king, and even though God had placed him on the throne, and even though God blessed him so abundantly, we still have recorded, don't we, in David's life, 
the failures of David as a king. Failures in his own household. Failures in his own marriages. Failures in his function as a king to do that always, which was righteous. Because David was a man. And so he says, with my house, although my house be not so with God, in verse 5, yet he's made with me this covenant. And we'll look at that a bit more as we, as we continue to begin to think about this. But David was assured of this, that one day there'd be a day, as he describes it, a cloudless day. A day without clouds. I think of it every time I go outside. I find myself looking up in a day when you can see, even like today. I walked out today, and I said, look, there's not a cloud in the sky. And every time I think of that, I think of this verse. A cloudless day. No dark cloud to mar the beauty of that sky. David said, there's going to come a day when there will be one who will arise. The sun will arise he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a day without clouds, as beautiful as the grass springing out of the earth by the clear shining after rain. Now, I know that's hard for folks in California to relate to. <laughs> we in Florida don't have a problem with it. <laughs> we have rain every day. I mean, there's rarely a day that we don't have rain. And I'll never forget coming out here once. I think we were at Yosemite. I was talking to some of the young men, and said, man, did we have a lot of rain? Really? Yes. You know, it rained twice this month. I'm like, whoa, you know. <laughs> I mean, we, if we get two days without rain, it's, it's something. But yes, folks, there is this stuff called rain. And, and when it shines on the grass in the morning, even the dew of the grass in the morning, it sparkles, you know, and it's diamond-like. And David described that day that would one day come. He looked forward to a day that would one day come, a cloudless day, a beautiful day, like the rain as it's fresh, like the dew on the grass in the morning. And he says, God has guaranteed it because he has made a covenant with me, and he has made it sure. I mentioned I think this morning, the sure, no, maybe it was with our men, the sure mercies of David. That is the guarantee that God made of what he was ultimately going to do through David's successor who would one day come. Now back in 22, chapter 22, David again, as I said, rehearses how he came to power. Well, you know, as I said, it's an election year, isn't it? And, uh, oh my, how, how the politicians like to uh, tell us all that they have done and all that they are going to do and all the wonderful promises. You know, we live in where we've moved to in Florida now. Um, we, we're, uh, our chapel building sits on A1A, uh, and the other side of the street is the Atlantic Ocean. So our chapel building is called Bethany Bible Chapel by the Sea. You know, lovely, right? And, and we have moved like a stone's throw from the building. I mean, I can walk, you know, to the building like almost like you would closer even than the home here almost. We're less than a block from the building, which means we're right there at the beach. And then just five minutes away, we've got the beautiful 
in, well, at once beautiful Indian River. Um, you ever travel to Florida, you, you see the Indian River grapefruit, you know, Indian River citrus. Well, we live right there by the Indian River. And I noticed when I moved there, because it is a political season, all the politicians uh, advertise I'm going to do, you know, 15 different things, and I'm going to clean up the Indian River Lagoon. I mentioned that to one of the men in our assembly. He said, I've been living here 50 years. For 50 years, they've been saying, I'm going to clean up the Indian River Lagoon, and none of them have ever done it. I don't even know if they can. But promises, right? Press releases. What would David record of how it is that God raised him to power? How did he come to authority? Well, you might think, wouldn't you, if David was going to say, I'll tell you how it is that God put me on the throne. You know, one day I went down to visit my brothers, and the battle was pitched against the Philistines. And there came a man that was so big he had a spear like a telephone pole. You know, and uh, all our armies were trembling in their boots, and I was just a young man. But I went up against the giant, Goliath, and with God's help, I took him down. And everybody began to sing my praises. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And it was because of that that God exalted me to be king over Israel. But he doesn't read his press releases like that. He didn't say, you know, it's because I led the nation of Israel into their zenith almost of power. I uh, established territory and gained such territory, and I defeated their enemies, and I was a mighty warrior, and because of that, God placed me on the throne. That's how I came to power. That isn't what he says. It's not his press releases it's not his illustrious career. He does something which, if a politician does it, and certainly if an eastern king did it in that day, it's quite unusual. You can read the inscriptions of the archaeological findings of some of the great kings of the earth and, uh, you know, that have lived on this planet, mighty kings, at least in mighty warriors, and you'll read... Uh, oh, how they conquered such and such a nation and a people and, you know, the mighty battles that they performed and all those kind of things. That's not what David says. David tells us the remembrance of a time of weakness. He tells us about a time where he says in verse 5, when the waves of death compassed me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid the sorrows of hell compassed me about the snares of death were there before me and in my distress I called upon the Lord I cried to my God and he heard my voice and he delivered me David says, there came a, a time in my life when I was at such a, a point of weakness and despair. I was ready to perish. I was done. And I called out. And God delivered me. He tells us that God answered his cry. And he does it in such a way that we're not quite sure. Was it a theophany? Was this an actual experience of David? Or was it just a mighty storm 
Perhaps a great electrical storm or something that took place and David realized that through the midst of that storm, this was God's answer. We're not quite sure, but that's how he describes it. It was that the Lord Himself appeared and delivered David out of that time of distress. He came down. He bowed the heavens, He says. He thundered from the heaven. And He, 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 he rode upon the cherub. And He bowed down the heavens. And God came down. And in the darkness that was under Him, He came down and He delivered me. It's not David now saying uh, how great a king I am because I was so wonderful and I was so mighty and I did so many prominent things. No. I would have perished if the Lord had not come down to deliver me. That's how God placed that man on the throne. And it's another reason why I believe when we read the Scriptures and we Think about David as us men were doing uh, over in Arizona these past few days. Why David was a man after God's own heart. He reminds us, doesn't he, of the one that's known as the greater than David, the Son of God himself. It's not hard, is it, to transpose this into the key of the New Testament. When we think of our own Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one of whom the Bible tells us that he has been exalted to the highest place of the universe, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. How did he get there? How would he tell us that he was placed upon that highest pinnacle that he now is seated at in the universe? Well, you know the answer, don't you? It wasn't just that he was the mighty son of God. It was that He Himself, He cried out, the Scripture says. And there on Calvary, in the darkness of that place, in the darkness of that hour, the storm that was there, when He was crucified in apparent weakness, He cried out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? And if you ever read that po prophetic Psalm, Psalm 22, you know that, that it has two parts. It has that first part where those words are found prophetically recorded. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There was a time in which he was not heard. And it was in the darkness of that hour on Calvary's cross that the Son of God, pure and holy as he was, was made a sin offering for you and me. He died that death to bear our sin so that all who believe in Him and, and, and trust in what He's done can be saved. And the darkness surrounded that place. The storm surrounded, surrounded that place. And then there came that time. And there's that turning point in Psalm 22 when God heard Him. And God answered. And God raised Him from the dead. Death could not hold him. Could not keep him. That's how the Lord came into that position of power, isn't it? He didn't just come to it by some means here on earth or his mighty miracles or his great teaching or his wonderful person. He came to his position of power 
through the means of the death of Calvary's cross. And why did He die there? He died there for you. And He died there for me to purchase our salvation and to pay for our sin. David was a unique king. There were people who were attracted to him. It's interesting to read the story of David's life and see what it was that attracted them to David. But I'll tell you this. I believe if I were to ask you, why do you submit to the Lord Jesus as the rightful ruler of this universe? I think you'd tell me, wouldn't you? It's because of what he did there on that cross for me. Why do I recognize him as the ruler? Why do I recognize him as the one who should have his authority over me and over my life? It's because of what he did there in that place. Not just because of his miracles, not just because of his teaching, not just because of anything else. It's, it's that, isn't it? I love that scene that's found in the book of the Revelation, you know, in chapter 5, when, when there's great weeping that goes on, and John wept because there was no one found on, in earth, no man in earth, no man in heaven, who was worthy to take that scroll out of the hand of the one who sat on the throne. And John hears, doesn't he, that voice of the lion of the tribe of Judah. But when he turns to look, he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. It's an amazing book, isn't it? I often said that if I ever titled the book of Revelation, I would call it the triumph of the lamb. What a, what a picture it is. What an ironic kind of a thing to think about. The triumph of the lamb. And if I were to ask you, if you're a believer in Christ, why do you submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it because like a lion, He's ready to pounce on you and tear you apart if you don't do what He wants you to do, to roar over you? Uh, I don't think that's what you tell me. I think you say, no, it's because as a Lamb of God, He was slaughtered for me. He was sacrificed for me. And it's that that draws my heart to Him. It's the language of Paul, isn't it? And the greatest motivating force in his life when Paul says, the Son of God loved me and He gave Himself for me. He never got over it. That's what moved Him. That's what motivated Him. That's what caused Him to give His life as He did in service to the Lord Jesus. The Son of God, He loved me. And he gave himself for me. Amazing to think about, isn't it? The nature of God's government and David's hope that one day there would be a ruler who would rule in the fear of God. And he would be just. And he'd be like the brightness of the morning. You know, when you get to the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, there you find the Lord Jesus. It's a very unique portion um, as he testifies there as the bright and the morning star, the root and the offspring of David. <laughs> David's thoughts so far off, not realized in his lifetime, not realized in centuries uh, to come after him, not even realized fully yet that one day there will be on this planet a ruler who will be just, and he will rule in the fear of God, and he'll be like a cloudless day, 
that day will dawn. How could David be sure? Because as we've said of the sure mercies of David, the covenant that was promised of that one who would come, and he'd be the root and the offspring of David. He'd be both divine and he'd be human. And we can expect a bright forecast. You know, there's a problem, isn't there? And David recognized it as well with those that rule. What do you do about the problem of evil? It's real, isn't it? If there is a God, folks say, it's one of the most common questions that critics will launch. If there is a God, what about evil? Why does he let it go on? And David recognized the problem, didn't he? He says, you know, those sons of Belial in chapter 23 and verse 6, um, <laughs> they're like thorns. If you, well, most of you probably can see better than I can, but you'll know if you looked at my arms, you'll see some deep scratches. <laughs> and some of you men saw the blood running down my arms the other day. And... Uh, it's because there was something I was trying to retrieve, and it happened to be in the midst and underneath uh, a lime tree. Now, I know citrus trees because we have them in Florida, and I know that they have incredible thorns on them. And before I knew it, sticking my hands underneath that lime tree, I came out with blood running all down my arms, and immediately everybody thought Ricky had shot me. But... Um, uh, <laughs> I, of course, let him think that uh, and helped it out a little bit as well. But anyway, um, no offense, Ricky, you know we love you. But um, uh, <laughs> I tell you, that's the problem, isn't it? David says, listen, the sons of Belial, they're like thorns. The problem with thorns is you can't grab them with your hands. You grab them with your hands, they're going to stick you. The problem of evil is a sticky one, isn't it? Trying to get rid of evil? Be careful. You might get stuck. He says, you know, you got to put on a coat of mail. you got to put on an armored suit almost. The man that's going to mess with that, he's got to be fenced around with iron and, and just take a pitchfork and throw him in the fire. I mean, that's the best you can do with that. A spear and a staff, like a pitchfork, and throw him off into the fire. That's all you could hope to do. What qualifies a person to deal with evil? See, the problem is when you try to root up evil, well, dealing with evil and evil men, what qualifies a person, what qualifies the Savior to deal one day with evil? It's interesting, isn't it? Some of our meeting early this morning, we thought about the fact that he bore the thorns of evil men. They took that crown of thorns wonder if it stuck any of their hands and they knew how painful it was as they plaited that crown of thorns, placed it on the Savior's head, and then with rods beat it down into his brow. O oh, sacred head once wounded, abused with crown of thorn. He bore the thorns of evil men. He bore the curse. There's only one who knows how to deal with evil. And it's God. And in his time, he'll deal with it. The disciples were taught that, weren't they, in the, in the parables of the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. They'd never heard about a kingdom like that. That's why it was a mystery to them. 
The Lord gave the parable. He says the sower goes forth to sow, and he sows seed. And, 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 the, and the wicked one went out, and he sowed seed too. And, and they both came up, and you couldn't tell the difference. They all looked the same. Don't try to root it out, he said. You wait until the Lord comes, sends forth the angels at the end of the age. He'll deal with it. Because you try to root it out, well, you're going to mess it up. You'll mix in some of the good and the bad and the everything else, and ultimately we can't ultimately deal with it. But he can. He's qualified. And so, regardless of what happens in November, ultimately we have a bright forecast. Let's turn to one closing passage that's found in Hebrews in chapter 2. It's a great passage to consider. David looked a very long ways off. And as we think in chapter 2 about a passage where we read about humanity and where we read about the Son of God who took on him not the nature of angels but the seed of Abraham, he I want to just focus in really on three words that are found in two chapters, the first chapter and the second chapter. The word is found in verse 13 of chapter 1, but to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? And in my uh, translation it will say until. And then secondly, in verse 8 of chapter 2, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he hath put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not yet put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. God has an incredible plan for man, humanity's destiny. Uh, crowned with glory and honor subjected everything to him. But what's happened to humanity as we look in the world around us? What has happened to the dignity of human beings? What has happened to man's humanity that turns to man's inhumanity to other human beings? The incredible dignity and destiny that God intended for human beings it seems like the whole plan has fallen until we remember those words. Not yet. What is the guarantee that God's program for humanity will one day come to fruition? We see Jesus. He's the guarantee. And he was made a little lower than the angels, but because of the very death he died, he has been crowned with glory and honor. The guarantee that that program will take place in God's timing is we see Jesus and where God has placed him at his own right hand. The program will come to fruition. And the destiny for human beings will be complete. Those that have trusted in him and evil will be taken care of by the only one ultimately who's qualified to do it. We see Jesus. Let's keep our eyes where they should be. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Even David, such a great king as he was, an imperial monarch that he was, 
with nations and peoples submitting themselves to him that weren't even of his own kinship. <laughs> what a thing that was. And yet what a scene we find in heaven when every nation and tribe and people group and language group, those that are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, will submit themselves and sing and proclaim the worthiness of the Lamb of God who's there on that throne. And how was he placed there on that throne? Not just by his own inherent right to be there, but he died that death on Calvary's cross. That time when death and the sorrow of death and the waves overwhelmed him. And he cried. The very Son of God cried. And he was heard and answered. We're thankful that death could not keep him and hold him. He was raised from that place of death and exalted to the place of glory. We recognize him there now, even though the world doesn't see him there. We see Jesus. And the very death that he died is the reason he's crowned with glory and honor. And so we thank you again for what one day will take place, the guarantee of the sure mercies that were given to David by covenant. He'd have a seed that would sit not only on the throne of this earth, but on the very throne of the universe. We look forward to that day, but until then, we live in a fallen world. And Lord, if you started judging evil now, well, Lord, there'd be a lot of people that'd be lost. We know the only reason that you don't intervene in that way now, the, the only valid reason we find in Scripture is that you are long-suffering. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet, that same passage tells us the day of the Lord will come. There will be a cutoff. And so we pray that any that hear us, either here tonight or by means of other form of media, if they don't know Christ as Savior, that right now they might willingly come and place themselves under your authority Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We give you thanks in his name. Amen.